Take a Bible and find Matthew chapter 6. There are notes in the bulletin this morning. If you're reading through the New Testament with us this year, and I hope you are, the section of verses that we read this week are Matthew chapter 6 to Matthew chapter 10. This last Wednesday evening, we looked at some of Matthew 8 and some of Matthew 9, and on Sunday mornings, we will look at part of the passage that we've read together in the last week. So this morning, our passage is Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34, and I'll just start by acknowledging that that is part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that's found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And I'd just like to say a few things about the Sermon on the Mount generally before we jump in to this particular passage. One of the things I'd like to say is that when you read the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, it is 111 verses. It is probably not a word-for-word, court-reporter-typed transcript of everything Jesus said when he preached this sermon. It is probably like what we find in the book of Acts where we read a sermon from Paul or a sermon from Peter, and you read through that sermon, and it takes maybe two, three, four, five minutes, and you're left wondering, why in the world does my preacher go for 30, 40 minutes when these guys could get it done in five or 10? Well, one of the reasons is your pastor is not Paul or Peter or Jesus. But another reason is that probably what we're reading is a Holy Spirit-inspired summary of what Paul or uh, Peter or Jesus actually preached. I say that because we know there was one time where Paul preached so long into the night that a young man sitting in a window got tired and fell asleep and fell out and died and Paul had to go down and raise him back to life. So Paul preached for a long time and what we have in the Bible is a summary of those sermons and that's probably what we have here in Matthew chapter 6. I also want to say this and this sounds a little bit silly when you're talking about Jesus but The Sermon on the Mount has held up remarkably well, considering that it's 2,000 years old. Obviously, everything Jesus says holds up remarkably well. I just think that when you read the Sermon on the Mount in the year 2021, it sort of reads like Jesus spent 10 minutes scrolling through our collective Facebook profiles And then said, okay, I need to talk to these people about this stuff. It's very, very relevant, and that's certainly true for our passage this morning. Now, I need you to see the big picture purpose of this sermon if we're going to make sense of it in the right way. I need you to understand the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus telling people how to earn their salvation. You have got to get this down deep in your bones. This sermon is not, not, not Jesus giving you and me or anyone else a checklist of things that we need to do if we want to go to heaven someday. This is not a to-do list in the salvific sense of a to-do list. What this is, is Jesus talking to people who have already decided to follow him, talking to disciples, talking to saved people, saying, When you truly know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you know the one true God as your heavenly Father, this is what your life ought to look like. That's really important that you and I understand that, especially as we talk about worry 
and anxiety in this passage. Now, one contextual note. We're jumping right into the middle of a sermon. There's stuff before it and there's stuff after it. Right before it, Jesus was talking about money. He was telling his disciples how they ought to handle and how they ought to think about money. Jesus said things like, I assume my people will be generous with their money. I assume that they won't live with the mindset of money is to be hoarded and kept for oneself, but that it's something God entrusts to us so that we can be generous to those who have needs, physical needs or spiritual needs. Jesus says things to his followers like, you can't serve God and money. You will love one and hate the other or hate the other and love the one, but you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says to his disciples, he wants us to care more about heavenly treasure than earthly treasure. And he warns his disciples about their eyes. Why in the world would he talk about money and say to his disciples, be careful about your eyes? It's because Jesus knew back then what it's like for me to walk into academy today. And I, I walk in and I see and I say, I need one of those and two of those and a couple of those. And you know how that works. If it's academy for you or the internet or Amazon or whatever it is, the things you see, you start to think, oh, I need those things I want those things. Jesus says, be careful about your eyes. And then he starts to talk about worry. And he starts to talk about anxiety. So that's the big idea of our section of verses this morning. Jesus expects his people to live lives that are not marked by worry or anxiety. Let's be very careful what we're saying and not saying. What we are not saying is, You must never worry or be anxious if you want to go to heaven. It's not what we're saying. It's not a to-do list. It's not a checklist. It's not up to you to earn your way into a relationship with Jesus Christ. What Jesus is saying in this passage is, once you have entered into a saving relationship with him, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, his disciples came to him. Once you are a disciple, a learner, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then your life, when you know the truth about Jesus and you know God as your father, then your life should not be marked by worry or anxiety. So that's the big idea. There's two English words here. I'm reading out of the ESV. The ESV uses the word anxious or anxiety Most other English translations use the term worry. If you're old school and you're in the King James, it just says, take no thought of your life. We're talking about worry and we're talking about anxiety and we're saying these things should not mark the lives of those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So take your copy of the scriptures. Let's read our passage together. I will read it. You can follow along either on the screen or on your screen, or in your copy of of God's word. This is the word of God in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Jesus speaking. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, 
What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we stop this morning as your people. We humble ourselves under your powerful, living, true, authoritative, sufficient word. And we pray that the words of the Lord Jesus Christ would change us from the inside out. We pray that as we have entered into a relationship with Jesus as disciples, that our lives would more and more increasingly look like what Jesus is talking about here. And Father, we pray for those who are in the room who have never become a disciple of the Lord Jesus. We pray that they would hear his word this morning, that they would see that his burden is easy and his yoke is light and that they would take up their cross and follow Jesus. Lord, be honored in our time together in our consideration of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's talk about worry and anxiety just for a minute. Earlier this week on Monday, uh, the mail came to the office at the church and there was a package delivered by the mailman. And it looked like this. It was a small cardboard tube. Uh, it looked like it might hold a cigar or something like that. It was addressed to Crystal Lyon and Crystal took this package and she looked at it and just about the time that she looked at this package, she got a text message. The text message came from our former youth pastor, Hunter Siegler. And the text message said to Crystal, Crystal, you're about to get a package delivered. It has your name on it, but it's not for you. Don't open it. It's actually for Landon. And Hunter said, I thought if I put Landon's name on it, it would be too obvious. So I put Crystal's name on it. This is the logic of a youth pastor, you understand. He said, take it to Landon and make sure he opens it. So Crystal brought me this tube. And look, you pastor in a place for a while. You know who's on your side and not on your side. You know who's loyal and who's not loyal. And Crystal is loyal. And she said, hey, I got this package. It has my name on it, but somebody texted me and said this is actually for you and they want you to open it. Now, Hunter and I have had conversations in the past. 
Hunter has made threats in the past about glitter bombs. So, this is what I found when I opened it. A spring-loaded action that shot glitter, almost all of it right into my trash can. I gotta be honest, I've never opened one of these. I knew what it was. Most of it went straight in the trash can, but all afternoon my kids said, Dad, you got glitter on your face. What's, what are you doing? Are you wearing makeup? So here's the thing. When Hunter Siegler sends you a package labeled for someone else, you do not feel blessed and highly favored. You feel worried and anxious, and you get that pit in your stomach, and you say, ooh, should I open it or not? Part of me, I really thought about this, I thought about not opening it until this morning. Now, it would have been early service. You would have just heard the story of it. You wouldn't have got to see it. But I thought, what if I opened it live in church and on the live stream? And I thought about that for about two and a half seconds. And I thought, that's a terrible idea. I have no idea what's in this package. Opening it live in church is probably not a great idea. So look, that's one experience that we sort of laugh at of worry and anxiety. What about the worry and the anxiety that you see on people's faces when they go watch their children play sports or sing in a recital or play piano in a recital? Have you ever watched parents in those settings? You see a lot of fear and anxiety. You see some anger, you see some screaming at the referees and the officials. But you also see fear and anxiety and uncertainty. What about, to be even more serious, what about the fear and the anxiety, the worry that you see on the face of a parent or a grandparent when their kid is sick? That's real. Some of you know what that feels like. What about the worry or the anxiety, I don't know, that people might hypothetically feel if they live in the Permian Basin and oil prices were to go below the zero line? That's worry and anxiety for a lot of people, instantly. Worry and anxiety. What about the kind of worry and anxiety that you feel Every four Novembers, when you sit at home and you watch your favorite news outlet and they start to report the results of a presidential election, and you know these are not similar parties running against each other at this point, and whatever your political persuasion, you know if it goes one way, that means one thing. If it goes another way, it means another thing. What about the kind of worry and anxiety that Johnny Cash wrote about? Johnny Cash wrote a song called Worried Man. This is what the first verse says. The place I go to draw my pay closed the door on me today. Told me just to stay away. Don't come back again. I told my mama, baby, don't cry. I'll get another job before the day go by. I don't know where. And that's why I'm a worried man. That's the worry and the anxiety of somebody who knows, I have a family to feed, I have children to provide for, I have a mortgage to pay, and I no longer have the means to do that. 
It's worry and anxiety. What do you do with somebody who's worried like that? Do you just say, hey, lucky for you, I heard a sermon the other day about Matthew 6. So you should just go home and read Matthew 6, turn off your Johnny Cash, and turn on your Bobby McFerrin. Do you remember Bobby McFerrin? Don't worry, be happy. Johnny Cash, man in black, he's so depressing. Turn that stuff off. Don't worry, just be happy. Is that how we respond to people who are worried and anxious? At the bottom of all of this is the question, what is Jesus talking about when he says, do not worry and do not be anxious? I'll be very, very honest with you. Our staff each week this year is gonna do a devotion when we meet together in staff meeting. I led this week and I did my devotion based off this passage. And one of the things I said to our staff is, this is the kind of passage that is so easy to take it and use it like a baseball bat to bludgeon people in the pew. To just beat them over the head and to make them feel lousy about things that maybe they don't need to feel lousy about. So I don't want to do that. I don't want to just stand up here and take this passage and beat you over the head spiritually with it. But... If you know me, you know I also don't want to just explain it all away and say, oh, don't worry about worry. You can worry all you want and you don't need to worry about it. So the fundamental question is, what does Jesus mean when he says don't worry and don't be anxious? Or we could ask it like this. How do we think about worry and anxiety? Let's take a couple of things off the table. The first is this. God does want his people to be wise And that means we're going to think about it, we're going to plan for the future. Whatever Jesus means in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, don't worry and don't be anxious, he does not mean go to the Old Testament book of Proverbs and rip it out of your Bible, you don't need it anymore. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about hard work getting counsel and advice as you think about things that are coming up in your future. Book of Proverbs talks about not spending all of your money, but being like the ant who works hard and saves up. Why? Because you're gonna need that down the road. So whatever Jesus means here where he says, don't worry and don't be anxious, he doesn't mean you don't have to be wise anymore. You can all go quit your jobs. You can kick your feet up and watch TV all day. God's just going to magically take care of all of your needs. That is not what he means. Jesus still wants young people to go to school and make good grades, to get out of school and to learn a trade or to go to college or university. He wants you to find a job, a means of employment, of supporting yourself. He wants you to spend less than you make so that you can give to missions and so that you can save for your family. All of these wisdom things are all still on the table when we talk about worry and anxiety. Secondly, Christians are not Stoics. Christian maturity does not mean that we won't lament. Human beings feel emotions. When the Lord Jesus Christ went to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he wept. He didn't just hold a stiff upper lip and say, "Eh, hold it together, boys. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. He experienced human emotions. 
When Jesus prayed in the garden, knowing what was coming just a few hours later, he wept and he sweat drops of blood. Christian people are not stoics. Our mantra is not grin and bear it and toughen up. Our mantra is life is sometimes really hard, and when it's hard, you need to take your struggles and your suffering and your sorrow to God, and you need to be honest with God about it. That's what a psalm of lament is. It's the most common type of psalm in the book of Psalms. It's people, to going, uh, people going to God because they're worried and they're anxious and they're talking to God about it and they're saying, God, you promised to do this, but this is where I'm at and it doesn't seem like these two things add up. They sound worried. They sound anxious, but they're doing exactly what we ought to do. Feel emotion and take that emotion to the Lord, to God himself. Thirdly, there are legitimate reasons a person may need to seek medical help for debilitating anxiety. Legitimate reasons. There are also illegitimate reasons, but here I'm talking about legitimate reasons. I am not trying to detail all of those legitimate reasons. So This is not an exhaustive list. Let's just say that a person has experienced physical or sexual abuse. You should expect that person to struggle with anxiety. Take a soldier who has served in combat and then drop him back here in civilian life. They're gonna struggle with anxiety. There are traumas that we experience in life that will lead you to experience anxiety. And sometimes that is simply the result of the traumatic thing that you've experienced. Sometimes it's not a blemish on your spiritual report card. Sometimes it's not helpful to come to those people and say, what are you so worried about? What are you so anxious about? Haven't you listened to Bobby McFerrin? Have you ever read Matthew 6? Get your stuff together. Sometimes people have experienced trauma that is real and that is hurtful and that has lasting effects, and you should expect those people to struggle and to wrestle with anxiety. Now, I will tell you that from my unprofessional opinion, Americans are probably overdiagnosed and overmedicated when it comes to anxiety. But that does not mean there aren't legitimate instances when somebody's expectedly going to struggle with anxiety because of the trauma that they've experienced in their life. So look, some of these things we need to take off the table, some of these things we need to be clear about. Let me just give you a definition of anxiety. It comes from a guy named Corey Brooks, he writes this in Table Talk Magazine. He says, anxiety is not mere concern. Those aren't the same thing. It's not the type of fear that helps us survive a dangerous situation. So if a gunman walks into a room that you're in and starts shooting, don't look at the person next to you and say, don't worry. That's not what we're talking about here. There is a kind of worry and anxiety that helps you survive. It's not the concern for the moment we put our 16-year-old behind the wheel for the first time. I have a 15 and 8 tenths year old about to be behind the wheel on 191 going to school every day. I get a pass. This definition says that's not what we're talking about. That kind of concern that something is legitimately dangerous. We're not talking about our sick child's health. He goes on to say this. 
Anxiety and worry is an ongoing fearful restlessness wherein we imagine hypothetical circumstances of loss. The anxious one is playing the prophet by looking into the possible futures and imagining what it might feel like to lose something that we love. Here's another crack at defining what anxiety is. This is in your notes. Sinful worry and sinful anxiety are rooted in a lack of faith, faith in God, and they're manifested in ungodly attempts to control our lives. Ungodly there does not mean immoral. It means living with no reference to God and his existence. It means trying to control your life as if there were no sovereign God on the throne of the universe. What Jesus is talking about here is a type of worry anxiety rooted in a lack of faith and manifested many times in our ungodly attempts to control everything that we experience in life. So listen, I don't want to bludgeon you over the head with this passage and make you feel guilty about things you ought not feel guilty about. I also don't want to let you off the hook and say there's nothing to see here because there's very much something to see here. I also want to warn you. I got online this week, Google, and I searched for books on anxiety. There's a bunch of them. I mean, there's a bunch. There are millions of books published every year in English in the United States of America. I'm telling you, there are a lot of them about worry and anxiety, and they all say they have the key, the solution. All I'm saying to you right now is if you get online and you say, hey, this hit home, I want to think about this, I want to read about this, by all means, buy books, by all means, read. I'm all for reading. I'm all for reading people that you know you're not going to agree with on everything. I read books like that all the time. But I'm saying to you, there's a lot of books, a lot of books on worry and anxiety that have nothing to do with the Bible. Absolutely nothing. And there are a lot of books sold at the Christian bookstore or sold off the Christian page on Amazon or wherever that have nothing to do with the Bible. So if you're going to read on this, if you're going to study on this, I'm just saying to you, be careful. Now, to the passage. What does Jesus actually want from us? What is he actually hoping that our lives will look like? First, I think is obvious, don't worry, don't be anxious. Don't worry, don't be anxious. He says it, verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He says it again in verse 31, therefore do not be anxious. The kind of worry and anxiety that is rooted in a lack of faith in God and in his goodness and in his power and in his plan and in his providences and in his faithfulness, that kind of worry and anxiety ought to have no place in the life of somebody who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus just says, look, if you're one of my disciples, he's speaking to his disciples, don't worry and don't be anxious. And then he gives them some reasons why they should not worry and why they should not be anxious. The first reason is this. Life is more than what we consume. 
your life individually and life as a concept. It's about more than what you consume. Jesus says this in verse 25. Don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look, let's just be honest and admit that we live in a consumer culture. Let's be honest and admit that we get bombarded with advertisements all day, every day, in every form of media. And whether they say it out loud, some of them are honest and they say it out loud, but most of them are pretty sneaky and they don't say it out loud. All of them are saying, your life will be better if you have this thing or you do this thing or you receive this thing, or experience this thing. What all of these advertisements are telling you day after day after day after day is your life amounts to what you have and what you consume and what you own and what you can buy. We laugh at John D. Rockefeller for this quote. How much money does it take to make a man happy? Just one more dollar. We laugh, we say, oh, John, John, didn't you know anything? And we believe it. Really, we believe it. We really think that the cure for our anxiety and worry is a little bit more consumption. So let me, let me put this in visual terms. I'm a visual learner, so let me put a nice painting. I have no idea who painted this found it on Google Images right after I looked for books about worry or anxiety. I want to take this painting. I'm going to put some letters on it, okay? The boat on the left we will call worry. The boat on the right we will call anxiety. And the ocean we will call consumption. What you eat, what you wear, where you live, what you drive, what kind of vacations you take, all the rest. The things that you consume. You and I tend to live like Rockefeller's right, and we think, you know, I have all this worry and all this anxiety, and if I just had a little bit more, all that worry and all that anxiety would go away. My point to you is, if this tide rises in this painting, does it just magically drown the boats of worry or anxiety? They just rise with the tide. They just go up. And then they go down, and then they go up, and then they go down. And for some reason, we think if the consumption would just go up, surely it'll just drown out and sink all of my worries and my anxieties. But that's not how it works. You just get new worries and new anxieties, and it all just rises to a new level. You're not going to beat worry and anxiety with more consumption. Do you know why? It's because your life is not defined by what you consume. Every advertiser in the world wants you to believe the opposite. It's not true. Jesus says it's not true. Here's another reason you shouldn't worry or be anxious. We're more valuable than birds and flowers. This is probably my favorite part of the sermon because it's so simple and it's so easy to understand. There's some stuff in the Bible where the cookies are on the top shelf and you really gotta think and use your brain A dummy like me can understand this. Jesus says in verse 26, you know, there's birds out there. 
God takes care of them. The flowers grow. God takes care of them. It may be hard for us in Odessa, Texas in the winter to think about flowers. Have you been to Whataburger over on the corner down here by Market Street? They have a bird issue. And when I drive, I drive by, the birds seem to be doing wonderful. There's a lot of them. They've taken over Whataburger. They've taken over the trees. They've taken over the power lines. They've taken over the intersection. They're fine. And Jesus says, you know, you're more valuable than a grackle. God loves you more than he loves the birds. He loves you more than he loves the flowers of the field. What are you worried about? What are you anxious about? Thirdly, don't worry, don't be anxious because worry and anxiety don't change a thing. They change nothing. Absolutely nothing. Jesus talks about this in verse 27. In the ESV, he says, verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And some of the older translations, they use the word instead of span, hand breath. Can you add a hand breadth to your life? And I think the reference is to the book of Psalms, Psalm 39.5. Behold, you have made my days a few hand and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Jesus says you can do all the worrying in the world. Doesn't add one hand of distance to your life. Doesn't add five inches It's not going to add five minutes to the day that the Lord has set for your life. It's not going to change it. All the worry in the world doesn't change a thing. You ever been to Cracker Barrel? Worry in this sense is like sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair. You can do a lot of moving. You don't go anywhere. It doesn't change anything. You don't get closer to your car if you're leaving. You don't get Closer to the food, if you're going in, you're moving. There's a lot of activity, but you don't go anywhere. For some reason, we think our worry and our anxiety is going to move the ball down the field in some sense. It's not going to change anything. It's not going to add a hand's breadth to our lives. Do you think maybe we should have learned that lesson after the last two years? We don't worry about a lot of stuff. Jesus just sums it up in verse 34. He says, you know what? Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you really want to invite tomorrow's trouble into today? Don't you have enough today? Let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. That's what we're not going to do. We're not going to worry or be anxious. What are we going to do? We're going to, for one thing, remember that God is our heavenly Father. He's our Father. Look what Jesus says in verse 32. Don't be anxious. What do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? Verse 32. The Gentiles seek after all these things. The Gentiles seek after this stuff. Your Father knows that you need them. Paul's not being racist here, Paul's a Jew. And he's not saying the Gentiles are dummies. What he's saying is 
the Gentiles don't know God as Father. The Gentiles worship statues of wood and stone. And they made them or they bought them. Those are their gods. No wonder they're worried. They pray to a statue. Or if you're a sophisticated Gentile and you think that there is a deity behind that statue, I would just ask you if you remember eighth grade English when you read about Greek and Roman mythology. Do you remember the stories of the the Greek and the Roman gods and goddesses and the antics and the escapades? It's like watching Days of Our Lives on Mount Olympus. It's a soap opera. Well, if those are your deities, if you're a Gentile, no wonder you're worried. Because you're worshiping a malicious, petty, small, powerless, weak God. But Jesus says the Gentiles worry about that stuff. I understand why they understand it. But your father knows what you need. You and I have the privilege of knowing the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God, the creator God, the sustainer of the universe as our Father. That ought to change you. That ought to change the way you live and the way you feel about things. Jesus thought so. He at least thought it should change the way that we pray. And in this very sermon, when he taught his disciples to pray, he started off with the idea that God is our Father. I'm just going to put what we call the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 7 to 13, on the screen. And I'd just like you to read it together. Let's all read it out loud together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All of that prayer, beautiful prayer, starts with the idea that God is your Father. He knows what you need, and he will meet your needs. Lastly, what do we do? What is Jesus looking for from us? We seek the kingdom of God and we seek the righteousness of God. This is down in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's the kind of phrase that comes last in a sermon outline. It's the last blank on your notes. Comes at the end of this part of the sermon. You say, ah, nice. Seek the kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. And then you go to lunch and you start thinking about it and you say, What does that mean? I mean, what a lovely, churchy, spiritual, Christian phrase. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Okay, how do I do that? What does that look like? One of the things I would say to you is that when Jesus said, seek the kingdom, seek the righteousness of God, he said it right in the middle of a sermon. And if you want to understand what he's saying there, you probably ought to go back and start at the beginning of the sermon, and you probably ought to keep reading to the end of the sermon. So I think Jesus, when he says, seek the kingdom and the righteousness of God, I think you could go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, where Jesus starts to define blessing for his disciples. 
So if we're going to seek the kingdom, maybe we start there. We say, I'm not going to start with an American idea of blessing, but I'm going to start with Jesus' idea of blessing. And then maybe you keep reading through the sermon and you come to chapter 5, verse 13 down to 16, and you say, we're supposed to be salt and light. In a dark and decaying world, we're supposed to stand out and be different and to make a difference, not for our name, but for God's glory. You come down to verse 17, Jesus talks about how central he is to the law. You say, okay, if I'm going to seek the kingdom and righteousness, I've got to put Jesus at the center of my faith. Not the Ten Commandments, they're important, but they're not the center of my faith. The center of my faith has to be Jesus. He's the fulfillment of what God's promising. You come down to verse 21 and then verse 27 and you say, look, I'm going to have to fight sin internally. If I'm going to seek the kingdom and the righteousness of God, I can't just be concerned with adultery and murder. I actually have to start thinking about lust and anger. You come down to verse 33 and verse 38, and you say, look, I'm supposed to be a person of integrity. I'm supposed to mean what I say and say what I mean. I'm supposed to not retaliate to my enemies. I'm supposed to love my enemies. You get into chapter 6 and you say there's some spiritual disciplines talked about here. Jesus talks about giving and he talks about praying and he talks about fasting and then he talks about money. If I'm going to seek the kingdom and the righteousness of God, I'm going to have to think the way God thinks about money, not the way Americans think about money. You go to the other side of our passage and Jesus talks about judging people. He's not saying that you can't call something sinful if it's sinful. He's just saying be careful about calling something sinful when you're ignoring unrepentant known sin in your own life. You need to be careful about that if you're seeking the kingdom and the righteousness of God. And you come down, he talks about prayer some more. He talks about doing unto others what you would have them do to you. So if I'm going to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that impacts my relationships with other human beings. You come down, Jesus says something shocking starting in verse 21. He says, on the last day, there's going to be a lot of people who stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and they start to list off all the things they did. And Jesus is going to say, but I don't know you. I never knew you. Let's go back to where we started in thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not telling people how to earn their salvation. Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection did everything that needed to be done for you and I to be saved. If you have never repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is how a person is saved. This sermon is not Jesus saying, be good enough, I'm going to grade you out on this sermon, and if you get a 90 or above, you're in. 70 to 80, we're going to have to do some extra credit. 60 and below, sorry. We're all going to fail. The question is not, can you do all the stuff in this sermon perfectly? The point that this sermon boils down to is, do you know Jesus. If you want to seek the kingdom of God, you had better make sure you know the king. You had better make sure you come to Jesus for righteousness. You cannot earn it on your own. 
You can only receive it as a gift from Jesus Christ. And when you know him as the king, and you receive the gift of salvation, and you know God as your father, these things ought to increasingly over time become more and more true of your life. And this morning we're thinking about worry. We're thinking about anxiety. Jesus says, don't be a worried person. Don't be an anxious person. Know God as your father and seek the kingdom and the righteousness of God. Let's pray together.